start over. Uh, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name, friends. Amen. Peter sees a problem. Or maybe it's the problem that you saw as well. So, over the course of the time that Peter has been a follower of Jesus now, um, we're in the latter portion of Jesus' ministry by this point, Matthew chapter 18. Peter has heard Jesus talking about what forgiveness is, right? And how forgiveness, how we ought to forgive, how forgiveness is so necessary. And then, right, what we just heard in the conversation um, before this portion that we read last week, you got Jesus talking suddenly about how serious sin is, how damaging it can be, uh, the need to deal with it, the, the anger that God feels, right, is the example that Jesus uses when a, when a child is hurt by sin. And so now Peter is trying to, to reconcile these two things. What he knows, Jesus has taught him about forgiveness in general and this, this seriousness that Jesus tells us we need to treat sin with in this beginning portion of Matthew 18. Well, first off, right, just to review last week, why is it so important that we take sin seriously? Why is sin so serious? Well, as we heard first off last week, um, sin harms people, right? Sin breaks relationships, sin divides, sin hurts. Jesus used that example again of a child. And how, how often don't you see that happening, right? A, somebody who grew up in a church where there's just a hurtful, a harm, an experience. Sometimes people leave the church, right, because as an adult, they're like, well, I want to be a free thinker. My, I, I don't want to have to subscribe to the dogma or whatever. But there are people who come out of church with real horrible experiences, right? Not just children being hurt. We think about the, the horrific kind of child abuse things that we've heard, not just from Catholic churches, but um, the the SBC in the last few years. We see these kind of things. We think about ch- kids leaving the church because of that. Well, but how often doesn't it happen, right, still that an adult, too, might leave the church because of hurtful, harmful, unkind, hateful things that someone did or said to them in church? The one reason Jesus is concerned for sin and about sin. And the other reason, of course, is that it separates the sinner from their Savior. Right? Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, if your eye causes you, uh, go and point out their fault, because if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Right? That our sin needs to be addressed because it can lead us away from our Savior. Lead us straight into hell. It's dangerous. It's damaging to others and to ourselves. Sin needs to be addressed. But it's that tension there that Peter's struggling with today, right? How many times will we forgive, right? How many times is it okay for somebody to take us sort of through the cycle of, okay, I know I sinned against you, I'm coming to you, uh, I'm asking for your forgiveness, so now you're going to forgive me, and they go and do the same thing again. And so Peter comes to Jesus, verse 21, Peter came up and asked Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? Well, if we were standing there, right, in Jesus' shoes, how are we going to answer that question? Do we offer Peter a number? Or do we maybe say something about, well, Peter, what, what's going to come down to determining it is how genuine are they? How, how genuine is their repentance? How truthful is their repentance, right? Do we, do we really maybe lay into them with the law first off, just hammer them to make sure they're really feeling crummy about themselves before we offer that forgiveness? All right, Peter, I think, gets that now, really, what we're going to do is we're going to err on the side of just presenting them with the gospel, presenting them with forgiveness. And he assigns what he thinks is a pretty 
workable, flexible upper limit here. He says, seven, Jesus, seven. That seems like a pretty good upper limit. Seven times to forgive someone who, who sins against me in some particular way, right? One person, and maybe we even would, maybe Peter's intending to limit it to, right? My brother does this particular thing to me. I'll forgive him for that seven times, but by then he ought to have learned his lesson. What does Jesus say to him? Not seven times, but I tell you as many as 77 times. Jesus isn't necessarily saying 77 in particular, right? That Peter's going to start carrying around like a little pocketbook and say, okay, uh, John, okay, ooh, John, we're on like 70 already. Like you're getting to the end there. Now, uh, other Bible translations render this as 70 times 7. And it's not that Peter just needs to keep a bigger notebook because he's going to be 490. No. Jesus is taking Peter's little answer at seven and just blowing it up. Now, Peter, he's saying, don't even try and keep count. Because here's the point that Jesus is going to make, right? Refusing to forgive someone else, keeping count of their sin, tallying it up, that's just as dangerous for you as their sin actually is. And so then Jesus goes and tells this story that we heard to make that point. The Bible, of course, calls these stories that Jesus tells Parables. This one doesn't get the, the name of a parable, but it's, it's clearly the same sort of story. Right? It's a story that uses a picture of something normal, ordinary, from real life, we'd say, to teach a spiritual truth. And in this story, you've got a king, and he's settling up the bookkeeping in his kingdom. We would maybe, if Jesus were telling this story today, we'd hear him talking about um, a CEO calling in the CFO and the whole financial department, right, to, to sort out the uh, the business going on, or maybe an athlete or celebrity calling up their money manager fund, right, to see how their uh, various portfolios and investments are doing. One of the lower level money managers, one particular uh, manager of the king's funds, has known that this day is coming. And he's been dreading it, because what Jesus tells us is that this servant owed the king uh, the NIV 2011 we were reading rendered it 10,000 bags of gold. In Greek, it's 10,000 talents. Maybe you've heard that uh, used before. A bag of gold is not a bad descriptor of what a talent is, because a talent in and of itself was a lot of money. Right? Just as if I had a, a backpack full of gold, it'd be a lot of money. 10,000 bags of gold. This is so much money, I want to talk about it a little bit. Right? This is so much money that some Bible commentators out there will... Uh, raised the thought that perhaps when Matthew wrote down this parable of Jesus, he actually exaggerated what Jesus said, right? Jesus maybe said a thousand and Matthew just wrote 10,000 to sort of super, supercharge the point of Jesus' story because it, it's a fantastical amount of money. And so some Bible commentators will say, like, we actually have probably an error in transmission here that Jesus said. First off, there's never any reason to think such a thing. There's never any reason to think that the the transmission of the scriptures have given us something unreliable or exaggerated. Uh, Jesus' point is how fantastical this number is. Let me explain how fantastical this number is. Um, one talent in that time was what you're talking about making over roughly 10 years, of, or 20 years, 20 years of an average like laborer's sort of salary. Your average blue-collar worker would make a talent in 20 years. Okay, so then think about what is 10,000 talents. We're talking 200,000 years salary for your median income worker. 200,000 years. Calculating that, you're looking at something like 8.9, so we'll ballpark it, $9 billion is what this guy owes to his master. 
There's another parable, and maybe you know this one, where, where Jesus talks about another king who's giving money to his uh, servants to manage while he's away. And the amounts that he gives there, he gives one guy ten talents. He gives one guy five talents. He gives the last guy one talent. Right? That's a manageable amount of money. It's a lot. It's still a lot of money. It's workable, though. Ten thousand talents is the number in this parable. That's what this servant somehow... What was he originally entrusted with? We don't know. We don't know what this servant was originally trusted with. We don't know what the king gave him to manage. We do know that when the books are called to account, this guy is somehow in the hole for $9 billion. So the servant owes this incredible unpayable debt, right? Unpayable. How would he ever manage to pay his master back? The king gives orders to have him taken away. The servant begs for mercy. He's promising to pay it back, right? How ridiculous. Give me more time. This is 200,000 years salary we're talking about. The king is not going to be alive. This dude's not going to be alive by the time that he manages to pay this back. Please, give me more time, give me more time. The king had pity on him, is what we read, verse 27. He released him, he forgave him the debt. Again, it's this crazy amount of money, this nonsensical amount of money that Jesus talks about here because he wants Peter to understand the debt that he, Peter, by nature, owes to God. God, Jesus is going to answer Peter's question, how often should I forgive my brother? By first putting forgiveness into perspective. Peter, here's what your relationship with God is like. You owe God a debt that you could not possibly pay back. And God has forgiven you. Jesus uses that astronomical number because he wants all of us to understand where we stand before God in terms of the debt we owe him. Right? From the moment we're conceived, we all owe God one perfect life. He gives us life as a gift and he expects us to use that gift to love him, obey him in all things, to love our neighbor in all things, right? to look out for the good of others, to, to put him first, to put our neighbor first. That's the, the debt that we owe God, a life lived that way. And like the servant, when push comes to shove, we cannot make our books add up. We're all in the hole. But the king cancels the servant's debt. Right? Two, 200,000 years salary, this ballpark $9 billion, it's wiped out in an instant by the word of the king. That request he has, right? More time, more time, have compassion, as if that was ever going to actually happen. The king doesn't even bother answering that. He just forgives it, lets the man go free. Now, this is the part where, if you're thinking about this story, as it relates to the Christian story, this parable and the the actual narrative of the scriptures, where it diverges. Because in this story, right, what happens with the debt that the servant owes? It's just gone, right? It's it's wiped away as a... um, as if it had never been there. That's not what happened with the debt that you and I owe God. Right? This debt in this story was not ever paid. Your debt, my debt, has been paid. That's why Jesus came to earth. That This story, in a sense, is missing Jesus. The Christ, the, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the world's sin, this story missed the, the cross. So the reason, right, that we can expect relationship with God, we have relationship with God, we have relationship with one another, is the cross. What's missing from this story? Because Jesus is the one who paid our debt. The reason he came to earth, the reason he was walking around teaching and preaching and healing and talking about forgiveness and talking about sin was to pay our debt, to ensure our forgiveness by God. 
Because there was no way, just like this servant, there was no, no way that you or I would ever be able to pay our debt. We functionally could not. Right? We're born in sin. We've already, from the moment that we are beginning existence in our mother's wombs, we do not have what God already needs at that moment, perfection. Couldn't pay that debt. So instead, Jesus paid it. And this is where this story, right, has, has the overlap with the parable. It's not that just Jesus kind of steps in and God's like, oh, well, you know, I would have, I would have thrown you in prison like that debtor, but gosh, my son stepped in, so I guess you're free. No. That John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one only son. That God sent Jesus into the world to make that payment. That Jesus himself was willing to do it as well. That it was not, uh, a case of God sending him and Jesus being reluctant either, right? God's not reluctant in this, nor is Christ. That both of them love you. That both of them wanted to bring about your reconciliation with God. Uh, that both of them gave so that you might have life to the fullest, as Jesus says. The eternity of separation that you and I had earned because of our sin, because of who we are by nature, totally wiped out by the gift of Jesus given from God. Of course, still though, if, if Jesus had stopped right there, right, Peter's question wouldn't have been answered. And maybe this is why the cross doesn't enter into this parable. Right? There's no one who pays it. Because if if there had been some mysterious benefactor who popped in the story and paid that nine billion dollars, well, why wouldn't he just pay the next debt? Here's here's something I want you to think about as we continue into the next portion of the story. If we're not going to forgive, the cross disappears. Right? There isn't a cross in this story. There isn't someone who's going to step in and forgive the second debt because the second uh, debt servant didn't want forgiven. So his original debt at the end of the story is restored. He rejected the cross. He rejected the idea that someone else, when his debt had been paid, someone else's debt could also be forgiven, could also be paid off. The cross disappears in this story. And likewise, Jesus is telling us, when we refuse to forgive, the cross disappears for you as well. So the, the story goes on, right? The servant who's been forgiven the first time, he's released of all this debt. He walks out of there. He's, he's got to be walking on cloud nine. And all of a sudden, all right, if I you know, use you as my the second guy here, thanks. He sees a guy who owes him some money. I have a, 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 a Bible that I was given as a, in grade school. Um, and it's got an explanatory footnote at this point. It's got a footnote on the amount of money that's owed here. And it's totally wrong. Right? Maybe you've heard this before. I want to explain to you that if you've heard this um, explanation of this um, amount of money, it's totally wrong. My Bible that I have uh, since I was a kid says that this is a few dollars is what's owed between these two. It's just incorrect. Right, we heard um, 100 silver coins, the word there, a denarius. There's another parable Jesus tells, um, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where they all get hired for a denarius a day. It's about what a worker could expect to make in a day is a denarius. So 100 denarii, 100 days wages, right? Over three months salary. When we start taking that into median worker income, we're talking something like $11,000, $12,000 is what you owe me. Thanks for playing along here. Not a small debt. Not a small debt. A debt that if unpaid could do, right? If somebody owed you $11,000 and they were not going to pay it back, you would be harmed. Right? You could you could have some serious difficulties without that money that you're owed. Right? You 
you would have to figure out some kind of way to deal with an $11,000, $12,000 hole in your wallet, in your personal accounts. This amount of money is also chosen by Jesus very particularly because he wants us to understand, right, we can't just think about the small sins that people have committed against us as that which we're going to forgive. We've got to be able to forgive huge debts, harmful debts, debts that can really do some damage to us without proper restitution or whatever. That's not how the uh, the first servant approaches the second. And instead, he comes up to the guy, grabs him, pay me what you owe me. In Greek, um, it's even more pointed, the hypocrisy of this servant. What he says literally is just, if you owe something, pay it. Right? He sets this out as sort of a general rule, not just personally for me, but this is how you ought to live life. If you owe money, you pay money, is the way he sets it out in the Greek. Oh, the hypocrisy. Right? He has just walked out of there. How would he have felt if the king had said such a thing to him? If you owe something, pay it. That's how he, he comes up to his fellow servant. Grabs the man by the shoulder, shakes him. The other guy falls to his feet. I promise, I promise, I'll pay you back. Not a thought for forgiveness. Not a thought for the fact that, honestly, even if he would forgive the 11000 that he's owed here, he's still, you know, $8.9999 billion ahead on the day in terms of the personal debt that he has just been forgiven. No. Instead, he throws this second man into jail. This is the crux of Peter's question, right? How do I forgive someone who's actually really hurting me? How do I forgive somebody who's actually done damage to me, to others? How? So Jesus tells this parable because he's got to remind Peter of this. I came to save sinners too, Peter. And sometimes we hear the way that Jesus talks about his ministry. He came to, to um, give sight to the blind, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to, to um, restore the fortunes of the poor, right? It's harder for us sometimes to deal with the fact that Jesus also came to forgive unkind people, angry people, hateful people, people who do not at times act toward us lovingly, who, who, are, who are jerks to us, who, who are unkind towards others, who live life this way, that people like that are who Jesus came to forgive. But we've got to put ourselves all in the shoes of that first servant standing before the king. We've got to all recognize that each one of us is a sinner, that we've all, in one way or another, hurt other people. Right, whether, whether I can point to someone else and say, right, well, his, his, her pattern of behavior has done way more damage than, doesn't matter. Any, any damage, any harm, any, any sin toward another human being, toward someone created in the image of God, is an infinite transgression. We all owe God perfectly sinless life. We've all had that debt forgiven because of Jesus. And so here's how the parable ends. The king hears about what that first servant has done, and he's rightly outraged. He calls that servant in, the first one. He retracts the forgiveness given. No more cross. No more cross. And he throws him in jail to pay off his $9 billion debt. And for the rest of his miserable life, the servant thinks about those last words the king said to him, right? You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt when you begged me to. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Now, that's the story wrapping up, right? And usually when we read one of the parables of Jesus, we tend to end on the end of the parable. But Jesus has one final comment, right? He wants to, <laughs> he wants to make sure 
that this point comes across. And it's a heavy, heavy point that he says here. This is what my heavenly Father will also do to you, unless each one of you forgives his brother from his heart. We, as Jesus' church, we have been given this incredible privilege that we wield heaven's keys. The keys that open the kingdom of heaven are given to the church, that we can announce forgiveness to sinners, open them up and welcome them home, and we can do what Jesus was telling us last week. We can also, against the impenitent, against the person who clings to their sin and refuses to acknowledge it, we we do lock the gates of heaven and announce that locking to them. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, is the way that Jesus spoke of it last week. What should we expect God to say to us if we refuse to carry out that duty, if we carry out, if we, if we wield the keys in a self-serving way? How could we expect to hear anything else other than, you wicked servant, if we refuse to compassionately use the keys of heaven on others? Such a kind of refusal, right, would reveal that we don't actually believe what God says about our sin. It would show that that we see other people as worse than us. That we see other people um, as worse than us and ourselves as better, their sin as greater and ours as less. And it would reveal that we've forgotten about the debt that Jesus forgave us. It would reveal that we no longer really think we need God. We don't need Jesus. We don't need a cross in that frame of mind. And that kind of refusal to forgive, it destroys faith. It destroys the relationship that exists between us and our God. So here's the question that Peter doesn't raise, but it's one that we ought to consider, right? So if I have acted like that towards someone, if I've acted towards someone like that first servant, what should I think? How, how should I regard myself, my relationship with God, if there has been someone toward whom I've been unforgiving, held a grudge, been unwilling to to overlook, to forgive as I've been forgiven in Christ, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, what's God going to do to me? Here's what God did for you. He sent you a pastor, a shepherd, a kingdom law gospel minister to tell you what I've been telling you all morning. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. That's who our God is. Merciful, beyond measure. And when we leave these four walls or twelve walls, whatever it is that we have in this wonky building, um, when we leave these walls today, right, he still has us in relationship with one another to do the same thing for one another. Right? As we interact with one another to forgive, to still wield those keys of the kingdom. Right? It's not something special that I get to do. It's entrusted to you as well, as Jesus' people, as members of his church, to, to announce the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation to your brother and sister. To confess. Right? There's, there's no reason for Christians to hide pride, anger, grudges. Christ knows it, and he's forgiven it. We confess such things. When we're admonished by a brother or sister, we confess such things. We eagerly await that that announcement of our forgiveness. Let me just say it one more time, and then I'll wrap up. You are forgiven. Amen. And I ask you guys to stand.